This week on Conversations on Healthcare, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter welcome Dr. Eric Topol, leading analyst during the COVID-19 pandemic. He says we need to do more to generate new vaccine discovery as these variants continue to evolve. The virus has not finished its evolutionary arc. The variant, BA5, is the worst variant. There's more to come. Saturday and Sunday morning at 8.30 on the Federal News Network, a production of Community Health Center Inc., chcradio.com. Our guest recently wrote the following, it's frankly sickening to watch this virus continue to outrun us, knowing we are so damn capable of getting ahead of it. We're going to learn more from the writer himself. Dr. Eric Topol is one of the most prominent and prolific COVID experts, as well as one of the top 10 most cited medical researchers. Dr. Topol is the founder and the director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, and we've always learned a lot from his visits, including the last one, which was in December, when the Delta surge was occurring. Dr. Topol, uh, thank you uh, for returning to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. All right, good to be with you both. That's great. Well, let, let's start with the uh, COVID Omicron variant uh, BA5, and it's uh, has three key mutations in its spike protein, and that makes it better at infecting cells and better at slipping past our immune system. What, what more can you tell us, uh, and what keeps you up at night about uh, BA5 and other offshoots uh, that could be on their way? Yeah, well, I think the key here is that although there's reluctance to accept it, the virus is getting worse. The variant BA5 is the worst variant. And I, I don't say that because it's causing the most deaths or hospitalizations. I say it because if you look at its biology that you just mentioned, the immune escape, the ability to uh, have growth and fitness advantage that we haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. so if you go look at the properties of the virus, it's getting worse. Also, parenthetically, it's lasting longer contagiousness. So instead of you know, what might have been seven days or eight days, it's clearly longer now. Uh, I don't know anyone in my network uh, now at the moment who isn't either infected or reinfected mm. almost. It's just extraordinary. So it's spread potential. We're seeing it. And the most reinfections that we've seen since the beginning of the pandemic. So these are qualities that should raise concern because the virus has not finished its evolutionary arc. There's more to come, unfortunately. And so rather than being uh, complacent and capitulating, we should be arming up for how we can get ahead of the virus, which we've never done since the pandemic began. Well, I couldn't agree with you more about what we're seeing in our, our social networks. Uh, I'm gonna uh, go off a little bit to the side on the issue of COVID for a moment and speak about a person. Uh, because we just learned recently that Dr. Anthony Fauci has announced that he's going to step down from his post by the end of President Biden's first term. He played a very forward and prominent role, certainly in this uh, first couple of years of the COVID vaccine. What do you think about the role that he played? How effective was he as a communicator? And do you think he helped America to better understand what they needed to do? Any thoughts on what might have been done differently? Well, I think he's uh, been extraordinary in his ability to try to communicate and uh, just work tirelessly. Uh, he really is indefatigable, uh, he's an extraordinary uh, person and scientist and physician. So he's done his absolute best, but he's been under profound attack. 
I don't know how he's withstood this. I don't know how he can, can go on for a couple more years with all the uh, things that have been done to personally at hominem go after him. Uh, just it's a reflection of the, the anti-science anti-vax uh, organized um, efforts that we have right now. And he's been, you know, right in the middle of it and uh, bearing a lot of the brunt like so many other people, but especially him because he's been uh, for much of the pandemic center stage. You know, I want to pick up on the thread of anti-science, uh, anti-vax, and you, you issued a clarion call that we need to apply uh, money, pressure, and government strength to create a variant-proof COVID vaccine. And you wrote in the LA Times that I quote that nasal sprays deserve an Operation Warp Speed-like program to accelerate their success. I'm just wondering what the hurdles are and are part of the hurdles that anti-vax, anti-science effort that's going on. I don't think we have uh, the attention of uh, our government in terms of the investments that they need to make. And I guess as part of that, are there other drugs in the pipeline in addition to the nasal spray we need or, or should be keeping an eye on? Well, you're making some important points there. Uh, a lot to go over. Um, you know, firstly, um, you know, back in January 2021, uh, in Nature, Dennis Burton, who chairs immunology at Scripps Research, and I wrote about the need to pursue a variant-proof vaccine. And here it is a year and a half later, and we still haven't done it. We have no shortage of candidates, that is, ways that we can induce broad neutralizing antibodies that, at least theoretically, if not in practice, would knock out any variant that this virus could present to us. But we haven't yet developed a program because it's been politically not supported with funding. And so basically all these great discoveries sit in academic labs all around the country and the world, and there's no organized effort to develop a variant-proof vaccine that has great promise. Uh, and the nasal vaccines are a somewhat similar category. There's three that are in phase three trials uh, but there's no Operation Warp Speed-like initiative. Remember, that was a $10 billion, which is a small amount these days, uh, considering we spent trillions, um, $10 billion to basically de-risk and accelerate the first vaccines, which worked really well. But we've never done something like that again. And we, we and many others have been calling for that. That is, we shouldn't be uh, at all discouraged. We can get ahead of this virus. We can do this. We're just not doing it. And then add to the woes concerns that I have is that we likely will develop Paxlovid resistance oh. over time. Millions of the blister packs are going out, you know, uh, every week or month here. And we're going to see the virus in MPRO, the, the main protease. It's going to find a way to resist Paxlovid. And where is our backup? And again, we have a long list of really good candidate backup pills, but we're not, you know, pursuing those in the accelerated uh, way we could. So the point is the potential to get ahead of the virus is vast, but we're just doing like variant chasing and not putting in the aggressive pursuit that we need to do. Well, I, I understand that we do have another uh, vaccine probably uh, joining what's available now. CDC is about to review Novavax's COVID-19 
vaccine, at least for emergency use in adults, and the FDA already gave it's okay. I understand uh, there's uh, some concern about severe allergic reactions as a potential side effect. Uh, and then there was a poll by uh, Morning Consult that said that 77% of unvaccinated U.S. adults probably or definitely would not get a protein-based vaccine, such as this one from Novavax, which kind of leaves us with the question, is there any vaccine that today's unvaccinated adults are likely to be willing to get? And is there anything particular you would say about this one in terms of advice for people who maybe until now have said no? Anything that would be inclined to change their mind? Well, as already touched on, this entrenchment, anti-vax, anti-science has been profound and it's never been adequately countered by a, um, an aggressive strategy to, to deal with the dis and misinformation, unfortunately. And we are ranked 67th in the world behind Rwanda, Iran, Sri Lanka, and many countries on the list. You would never have imagined that for boosters no less primary vaccination. There's no reason why uh, Novavax wouldn't be, wouldn't be one of the good vaccines to take and hopefully it also be shown to be useful as a booster. There are new data out today to show it works well against Omicron variants like mRNAs with boosting. So um, I'm not optimistic given the entrenchment that we can break this vaccine at this point, um, this vaccine resistance. It's, it's, it's really unimaginable how profound that is. And it's the same thing that's holding back our aggressive get ahead plans. That's, it's the same problem. People say, oh, it's over, the, the pandemic's over. Wrong, but that's the gr same group that are anti-vax, uh, that are an anti-science. The science here is what's so exciting to get ahead of the virus. And we are just ignoring it or not giving it any priority. You know, you said the CDC has failed to warn Americans about the subvariant spread. Um, but as you said, it seems like the public has tuned us out. And I'm wondering what the prescription might be for the public health community in terms of trying to right the ship, if you will, um, and get us headed true north in terms of following the science and following the data. Uh, we simply haven't been able to uh, engage the larger public. Uh, are, are they just worn out or do we have to really adopt a new message to reach them? Well, we're all tired, right? I mean, nobody can say that they think this pandemic is a good place to be uh, still in it. And it's not at it, what I would consider an endemic steady state uh, phase whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So the problem is our CDC has been a profound disappointment. Rather than getting the message out a year ago when we knew about how boosters were life-saving, they resisted that for months and there was infighting with other agencies. And still today, that's why our boosters among age 50 and older, four shots, only one in four Americans have had that, which is amazing actually. Uh, and that's where we are basically so vulnerable. But beyond that, how can you possibly recommend a five-day isolation still when we know the virus lasts 10 days or not longer for contagiousness. It's, it's unfathomable. And so the lack of a warning until last week when finally there was a public, uh, and basically the message is we got this. 
No, we don't have this because they haven't gotten the boosters right. They haven't gotten the isolation right. They haven't gotten a plan right to get ahead of the virus. Until that happens, they don't have this. And it's, a, and it's an illusion. So we look to the CDC to provide leadership to prevent disease. But if anything, they're spreading it, which is extraordinary by not having appropriate isolation guidelines and messaging. Well, we could uh, we could spend the rest of our time talking about that issue. I, I couldn't agree with you more on the uh, that length of uh, length of time that people should be uh, quarantining. But I wonder if I can ask you about this issue of uh, COVID and children and the really everywhere slower than I would have hoped uptake, uh, particularly some states in the southeast. Uh, Parents are so slow to inoculate their children that we're seeing fewer vaccine doses even ordered uh, from the state supply. What, what's going on there? And do you, are you seeing any uh, data around adverse effects in children from not taking advantage of the vaccine of this youngest group of kids? It's really discouraging, again, that um, the whole anti-vax uh, influence also being felt with children. First, we saw it in the 5 to 11 group. And there's really no risks there that are beyond the local, you know, the usual things that we right. see from, as far as like myocarditis, pericarditis, it's just, it, it basically is not an issue. Uh, and then when we have the six month to five-year-olds, it's even worse. So here we have such a large uh, population of children that are at risk. And a lot of them did have BA1 infections in early part of this year but that doesn't protect them from BA5 or subsequent infections. So here we have a great way to keep them insulated from getting very sick, from spreading their infections, from the long COVID that can occur in children. Um, and we're not doing it. And it's a shame because so much work went into getting pediatric vaccines validated. Right. Uh, and um, it's all part of that same continuum. And we're one of the few countries now that have gotten down to you know, the six month level, but we don't have um, it being implemented at any scale uh, in the country because of the anti-vax movement. You know, I'm trying to figure out what the practical uh, suggestions are to people around their daily life and talking more about adults in terms of masking up. How effective are those KN95s and N95s? Uh, it seems that part of the strategy here or you know, the, the results have been that the government and, and the like are trying to keep businesses open and they haven't figured out any sort of nuanced conversation with people. How important are masks here uh, so that you can continue uh, uh, to engage in uh, s social conversations with your friends and your neighbors and your families? Uh, what, 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 what's the fine line for people in terms of that they may be able to follow so they're not getting infected. Well, of course, it's not just masks. Uh, like you said, the good masks, high, high quality KN95, N95, which help. It's also distancing. It's also filtration and um, ventilation, all those things that we're not doing largely, right? Uh, they're, they're a, all, if we did all those things, like how can we not have masking in public transport? Right. It's incredible. If you go on a plane now, you rarely will see people with masks and that's in the airport and all kinds of, you know, you name the type of public transport. I mean, 
if you go to Mexico, they use masks. I mean, we're distinct deniers, denialism of the, the benefit of some masks, but it, it goes beyond that. We're not doing the, the, the simple things that would help. They're not foolproof by any means. This is a hyper infectious version of the virus. So none of these things are going to be 100%, but they help. In the meantime, we use this as a chance to get ahead of the virus so that our vaccines work better in the future, that we have other backup drugs, that we have nasal sprays that will protect us from infection and transmission, because basically we've lost that edge largely. So it's just, you know, these are temporizing measures to help us get through to when we, when we have something better to offer people. And we're not using them. And although I hate to raise the specter of a new threat uh, to health, as we talk, the World Health Organization Monkeypox Committee is getting ready to meet and decide if it reaches the definition of a pandemic, but we're certainly reading a lot about it uh, in the press. Uh, how do you see this viral disease? What's likely to be the pathway in the coming months with monkeypox? Well, uh, you know, I'm concerned about it, but I don't look at it in, in anywhere near the issue that we're facing with uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, which obviously has caused millions of deaths and worldwide turmoil. I mean, monkeypox is a serious virus and it's spreading and it's very concerning and we aren't keeping up in terms of vaccines and, you know, sure, but it's in a different, uh, you know, order magnitude of concern um, that, you know, what we don't want to do is get distracted, which is what's happening. We, we can't afford to be distracted. We got so many things going on between, you know, ab banning abortions and the war in Ukraine and uh, <laughs> monkeypox. I mean, you can add a long list that we, inflation, that we're, we're missing what's really uh, critical, which is we still have COVID and we haven't done anything to contain it. Uh, and that, that's what we really need to do. And I see these things, unfortunately, as distractions from the main agenda. You know, you, uh, we had Dr. Fauci on in February 2020, just as the virus was making its way from China over uh, to the United States and around the globe. Uh, and one thing he told us was uh, coronaviruses mutate. And you've been talking about the evolution of the, of the virus itself. Walk us through where, where are we headed? You know, uh, obviously its transmissibility has been high. Will its lethality get higher? I mean, what, do we know, are we able to track the, the evolution of, of a virus like this, or um, are we sort of waiting for it to play its own hand? Yeah, I don't think we're ever going to see like lethality get higher because we have this immunity wall, right? I mean, we, we have parts of our immune response that have been primed mm -hmm. by vaccines and boosters and infections, right? So, that's the point is that the virus keeps evading our immune system more. And there's now signs as of Friday from the new CDC report that we're losing some of that protection against hospitalization that we had just from going from BA1 to BA2.12.1. So that trend, it's not like an on off switch. It's just like this attrition of protection. We'll see probably more of that over time with whether it's sigma or pi, whatever the new Greek letter or family. Eventually, we're going to get out of the subvariants, and we're going to get into a new family. And who knows what the name of that's going to be, but it's going to happen. And it's just, you know, when, whether it's before the end of the year, or early next year, 
And we're not at all prepared for that because it's not, the virus still has room to evolve. Well, perhaps a, a final question. It's almost flu vaccination time. Uh, hard to believe we're in July, but in August, I'm sure we'll be back out there. Share your thoughts on the importance of everyone getting a flu vaccine this year and how that preventative step fits into everything else that we've been discussing. Well, yeah, flu vaccines, they're good and they do help uh, raise your immunity across the board. Um, and uh, so that's good. But I'm glad you asked me that as a final note. And that is flu vaccines don't work very well. You know, their effectiveness doesn't get to 50%. We've had vaccines against this virus at 95%. There's never been a flu vaccine at that level. Right. That should give us optimism that this virus can be squashed that we can get ahead of this virus. We were in terms of a great effective vaccine, then the virus evolved. So this is a different virus. We can do much better. We just have to do it. We've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Thank you, Dr. Topol, uh, for the clarion call and vision that you've had all during the course of this uh, pandemic and thanks to our audience for joining us. You can learn more about the conversations on healthcare and sign up for our email updates at uh, www.chcradio.com. Thank you again, Dr. Topol. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Take care. Yeah. Bye bye. Thanks, now. Dr. Topol. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Children under five, including those as young as six months of age, are now able to be vaccinated against COVID-19. There are two vaccine options authorized by the FDA on June 17th, one from Pfizer-BioNTech for kids six months through four years of age, and another from Moderna for kids six months through five years of age. The FDA concluded that the known and potential benefits of the vaccines outweigh the known and potential risks. An independent panel of experts advising the agency agreed in unanimous 21 to 0 votes backing both vaccines. The littlest kid vaccines are essentially identical to their older counterparts, except they contain smaller amounts of mRNA. That's the active ingredient in the shots that the immune system recognizes and responds to, generating immunity. The other big difference for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is that the primary series includes three doses instead of two. The little kid Moderna vaccine is still a two-dose vaccine. Both vaccines are expected to primarily protect young children from getting seriously ill with COVID-19, similar to how the adult and older kid vaccines have been faring against the Omicron variant. The shots are also likely to provide some limited and temporary protection against infection and milder illness and may reduce your child's symptoms if infected. As with the Pfizer vaccine for older kids, the primary way the two vaccines for younger kids were evaluated for effectiveness was by comparing the antibody immune responses of children who had been vaccinated with those of young adults who had received the adult dose and for whom clinical trials already established efficacy. In this so-called immunobridging approach, 
If the neutralizing antibody levels against the virus are similar and a similar proportion of children mount an antibody response, then it is inferred that the vaccine works in younger children. The clinical trials for the vaccines did not reveal any serious safety concerns. The Moderna trial included around 4,800 vaccinated children who were followed for a median of two and a half months after the second dose. The Pfizer-BioNTech trial included about 3,000 vaccinated children, about a third of whom were followed for at least two months following the third dose. Similar to the vaccines for older kids and adults, the most common side effects in young children were pain, redness, and swelling at the injection site, along with fatigue, headache, fever, loss of appetite, or irritability. Most of these symptoms were mild and resolved within two days for the Pfizer vaccine or three days for the Moderna vaccine. Many experts, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the American Academy of Pediatrics recommend that all children six months of age and older get vaccinated unless they have a medical reason not to, such as an allergy to a vaccine ingredient. You can find more about the vaccines for the youngest children on our website. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Around the world, there are some 300,000 health facilities that do not have adequate electricity or lighting. And in these clinics and hospitals in the third world, many women give birth in near or total darkness. When Berkeley, California OBGYN Dr. Laura Satchel changed careers after a life-altering back injury, she decided to focus her attention on confronting this global health issue, which is one of the factors in the high rate of maternal infant death in the world. You lost the light, and the only way to get light was to burn the calendar so you could see enough to cut the cord. Okay, you get the prize for the most amazing story. (laughs) In Nigeria, where the problem is particularly pronounced, tens of thousands of women and newborns die during childbirth. So much of what we do requires electricity. The monitors, the lights, the machinery for helping with deliveries. It never occurred to me that in other parts of the world that the things that we assume to be completely fundamental to medical care would be absent. Dr. Satchel's husband, Hal Aronson, is a solar power engineer, and together they formed We Care Solar. They developed a portable solar power and lighting kit that could charge via solar panels by day, and be installed in clinics to provide power at night. What was remarkable was that when they saw that, they wanted to keep it. And they said, please leave it here because this will help us save lives even right now. That was the the light bulb moment for us. Even a little bit of power could go a long way towards saving a life. The kits come equipped with everything a clinician would need for communication in a medical emergency, electricity for walkie-talkies and cell phone powering, and power enough for a variety of lights and enough power to run some diagnostic equipment in the event of a surgical emergency. We had a doctor who requested a solar suitcase last Thanksgiving. He called us five weeks later and he said, I want to tell you what happened. The night that I came, I was able to save a woman with twins using the light And I would have called you the next day, but there was an outbreak of cholera the next day. And for the next 30 days, every man, woman, and child that had cholera came to our clinic 
and we used the solar suitcase every night. He said, for the first time in the history of this village, no one died of cholera. We saved 122 patients. And he said in the past, 50% of these people would have died. We Care Solar has grown from a backyard manufacturing operation with friends pitching in to a full-scale manufacturing plant in Berkeley, California. They've provided kits to hundreds of clinics around the world and are hoping to scale up their operation to meet the pressing need, not just in remote clinics, but also during disasters as well. We Care Solar, providing power and light for clinics around the world, improving the outcomes of the patients being served. Now that's a bright idea. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded in the Knowledge and Technology Center studios in Middletown, Connecticut, and is brought to you by the Community Health Center, now celebrating 50 years of providing quality care to the underserved, where healthcare is a right, not a privilege. CHC1.com and CHCRadio.com.